Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some recent interviews that took place on JM and the AM. Leon Goldenberg joined us on Yom HaShoah to discuss his family's story and so many different aspects about Holocaust remembrance. Leon Goldenberg, my guest on a recent JM and the AM, here on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Today is Yom HaShoah. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, Holocaust Commemoration Day. Uh, the day began, of course, in Israel with uh, sirens wailing as people stood in silent prayer um, and in thought, in deep thought, about those who uh, who perished during World War II, six million. The government of the state of Israel and the Rabbanut, of course, instituted the Yom HaShoah back in the early 1950s, and it became law in the mid-1950s, and ever since then, the 27th of Nisan has been designated as Yom HaShoah. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've invited Leon Goldenberg, who has a family story of uh, horror and survival uh, that he shares with us, and we get additional thoughts about what it's like to be uh, a representative of the Jewish community in the year 2019, these days, these very challenging times. And with that in mind, I say uh, good morning to Leon Goldenberg, who is with us live in our studio. Good morning, and welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. It's always good to be here. Appreciate that. Just two things that I want to comment on your opening. The six million number, the six million number seems to be wrong. The six million number seems to be wrong. First off, if I'm correct, and you can probably look this up online, Yad Vashem has over four million names already. Right. Okay? But in addition to that, there's a, 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 a priest, Father Dubois. Did you ever meet him? You no. ever had him on the show? No. Very interesting. Some 20 years ago, his family, although he's French, his family came from Poland. And his family never talked about the war. And finally, at one point, he got them to talk about it. And it seemed that they were in Poland, in their little uh, town, when the Jews were marched out to be shot. And... In other words, when the war started, that's what they were doing. They didn't have the gas chambers yet. They didn't have Auschwitz. So they just marched Jews out and just mowed them down. And what happened was that the entire population of the town went out to the killing site having barbecues. Now, he says that his parents did not take part in it, but that's one of the reasons that they left Poland. And he went back to his father's town, and he looked for the gravesite, and he found it. And then he made it his mission in life, and he, he has some 20 people working for him, digging up various sites where Jews were murdered and just shot down. The amount of sites that he's found, and you can look them up, uh, I believe it's 1,500 sites. 1,500 sites with some two million Jews murdered one bullet at a time. Not always murdered one bullet at a time. I think I've told the story of my uncle who was taken out on a march at the end, the death march. They marched him into the forest, they undressed him, they dug their grave, and they mowed him down. And my uncle, a few hours later, woke up. He wasn't dead. He was full of blood, he was sure he was wounded, and he managed to climb out of this grave under, you know, many bodies, and then he realized he wasn't even shot. He had been knocked over by people behind him that were shot. 
and standing naked in January in uh, Poland, he made his way through the forest till he saw in the distance a house with smoke coming out. And he went into the house. He knocked on the house. They wouldn't let him in. He kept banging and banging and banging. They wouldn't let him in. And finally he said in Polish, I'm a dog. I'm a dog. And when he said that, they opened the door. And they let him in. They actually gave him some soup. And they gave him a blanket. And they realized the war was almost over. And they decided they were going to help him. And because they were still in a war zone, every day they built a shelter in the forest. Every day he would go out into the forest and sit there from daylight till nighttime. And at night he would come into the house because they didn't want to take a chance that someone would come into the house and they'd find him. And he survived. But he has basically documented, and being, look it up, I think it's o- over 2 million Jews that were shot one bullet at a time. Where is he? Is he in Europe or the United States? He's in France. He's here all the time. Uh, he's a very interesting person. He tells the story a lot better than I do. Mm, and, not about that, but okay. And, and uh, the fact is that if there are two million Jews that were shot down whose names we don't have, and heard the Germans, when you went to Auschwitz and any camps, they registered you. They registered yeah. you. But these people, like in Bobby Yar, I was in Bobby Yar this year. How many people listening right now do not even know what Bobby R. is? Right. The killing site. But one of the most important infamous. modern Jewish, or infamous modern Jewish history yeah. sites. So they don't have real numbers. So based on everything that's showing up, the number is probably well over 6 million. It really is. It's a number that's been accepted. It's fine. Right. But I think you'll find out one day that it's way over. The other thing that you said and I'm going to go into this a little later, you said uh, they lived through the horror, and they lived through survival. survival. They also lived through greatness. Right, and you've discussed that yes. with us, and we will yes. touch on that for yes. sure. Yes. Not just greatness, but chesed and generosity. Right. And, uh, During the most trying times of human life. Leon Goldenberg is here. It's Yom HaShoah. I want to start with 2019, if I may. Yes. Um, someone like yourself, who in this conversation, no doubt, is going to describe uh, what the Shoah means to your family, and of course to the to you know the greater group of people around you who you grew up with, etc. Uh, when you see what happened this past Shabbos, um, and you know, someone commented on social media today, you know, I, I, that they have a hesitant feeling now when they're in shul with a large group of people. Just the fact that in the back of their mind they're thinking, you know, what could happen? No we know this from Pittsburgh, etc. When when you think that this happened just a few days ago in the United States of America, and uh, you read um, what type of uh, of hatred and what type of anti-Semitism this very young kid, a lot of people are calling him a man, he's a young kid as we 19 know. 19 years old. 19 years old. And what he was filled with, etc. Um, knowing what we're discussing today, knowing what the theme of today is, what are your thoughts about the USA? <sighs> very difficult subject very difficult subject because there's hatred on the left, on the far left, which is in many ways much worse. The problem is that the far right is armed. And violent. And violent. The far left is violent too. But more subtle. But more subtle, and they really don't believe in guns. And that's probably the only reason that we haven't had those incidents on the far left. The far right is very small, scattered. There's, There's no... It, it, you know, you have the nation of the, uh, whatever they call themselves, right. uh, of white people. 
They're very, very small little groups of people. There are very few of them. On the far left, on the other hand, intersectionality, where you know people that believe in, in you know worrying about African Americans, which they're a hundred percent right. Mm-hmm. But how does Israel become part of that? And if you're a Zionist, it becomes part of it. So the hatred is on both sides. But there's no question, even uh, uh, today going into shul, I open the shul at 5.10 every morning. So I used to open it and leave the door open. I was there alone. I was in you know, the back room getting the coffee ready. Now I lock the shul. Since Pittsburgh, I lock the shul until there are other people in the shul. This neighborhood is safe, but who knows? I actually lock the shul. And until somebody else comes in after me, and then there's at least two of us, not that two of us can do And much. someone near the door, though, etc. Right, right, somebody near the door. It's, it, is a, it is scary times. There's no question about it. This is in California. This is in San Diego, which is really a very liberal city. Uh, not, you know, California is mixed. Mm-hmm. But uh, San Diego is a fairly liberal city. And, uh, and you have people like this that, that get such hatred that they can actually go out and kill based on that hatred is mind-boggling. Um, the feeling that people now have, this feeling of, I don't want to say fear because that may be too strong, but the hesitancy, the again, the different things that are in the back of one's mind uh, now in 2019 in America makes me think on this Yom HaShoah that we concentrate so much on the system that Hitler... And the enemy used during World War II, we forget, and excuse the way I'm saying this, that there were many other ways in Jewish history and in history to demonstrate anti-Semitism. One does not have to have gas chambers to strike fear in Jews and to murder Jews. No. One can, just like they did during pogroms and a million other episodes in Jewish history, they can walk into synagogues and simply violently proceed to kill Jews. And that has now come to the U.S. You've been to Europe. You've seen how houses of worship, are, especially synagogues, are protected. You've seen that, right? Yes. In many cases, it's impossible to get in if you don't have a passport, going, proper consent. going into Rome, into the great synagogue, and see what you have to Even do. on Shabbos? Well, I was never there on Shabbos. But I think it's the same on Shabbos, it, if I'm not mistaken. It's not much better on Shabbos, right. that's for sure. But going through... On, on a weekday, to daven shachris, and happens to be, in my opinion, possibly the most magnificent shul that I've seen. And I've traveled, you know, extensively in Europe. My touring is all Jewish-related. I, I uh, really enjoy that, and I enjoy seeing shuls in old communities. So you want to visit this historic, incredible Jewish... I want to daven there. Right, and, and, and it's, it's a chore to get in. Yes. Is that? I assume it will be similar to that at some point in the U.S.? I hope not, but we are talking uh, as a community about much more security, about uh, possibly having, like, they did have a gun, in, and right. that's, what's not right, that's what helped. Right, that's what helped, right. I want to stay with 2019 for a second because you're so well-connected to government officials and the New York City Police Department. Uh, are they? In, 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 you're in a massively Jewish neighborhood a historic already Jewish neighborhood in the U.S., and that's Brooklyn. Is the NYPD going to have a much larger presence now as each of these episodes continues to, to N- occur? The NYPD, I would love to give a shout-out to because they have been unbelievable. They so they been, know where the synagogues are. They are they focused, know. especially on the large ones, I right, guess. Right, 
and and you'll see, especially like on a Shabbos like this, where something does right. happen tomorrow, the, tomorrow night, and or last week, right? Already, police cars all over. The NYPD is unbelievable as far as the Jewish community is concerned. They're out there. They've cut crime, even though they've stopped stop and frisk and many other things. They've still managed to cut crime because they're working smarter. Their intelligence is number one. Their intelligence. People don't realize this. They have offices, I think, in seven cities around the country, around the world. Right. Including in Israel. Israel right. And in London and in France. I don't, don't remember. I saw right. the list once. I don't remember. But they're all over. So they have tremendous intelligence. And they're out there, and they want to be seen, and they want everybody to know they're there and they're watching us. And one of the things we should remind the younger people, and really everybody listening right now, is that the difference between this country and many others historically is that, and if you think back to Kristallnacht and to other major episodes in Jewish history, including the Holocaust as a whole, it was uh, it was sanctioned government and police action. It was it was a order from the top to go and behave in this manner, to destroy Jewish shops, to round up Jewish people, men, women, and children. This was all from the top. We are blessed, even with these wanton killers walking into shuls and starting their own massacres, we are blessed that we have what you just described, an NYPD and a government that says just the opposite. We are going to take a bullet for you if necessary. And our mayor, you know, Bill de Blasio, who I consider a personal friend, also very forceful, very forceful on supporting Israel and very forceful on anti-Semitism. And that's coming from the top. It's coming from the top. Even our president really came out strongly against this. I guess he learned his lesson from Charlottesville. Right. Uh, but government officials will not stand for So this. even when we have a mayor, and let's be fair, who is somewhat aligned politically with some of the left that you Our described left. earlier— Nonetheless, when it comes to this issue, he feels so close and so committed to the Jewish community and to freedom of religion in this country that he's going to make sure that his offices and the NYPD are there for he's, our community and beyond. He's been a great friend of the Orthodox community. And the Jewish community, we And say. the Jewish community and a great friend of Israel. He spoke at APAC publicly. Right. You know, when the far left, all the other candidates, uh, even they, though he's not an afraid. officially right. candidate, right. but he spoke. Well, high f- figures on the left, right? right. High public figures. He, he uh, has agreed to go to campuses. I asked him about going to campuses. The question is how we're going to set it up. The NYU thing it. would be unbelievable right. if he would go there to speak about anti-Semitism. So maybe that's actually a good idea, and, a good I, idea. and I will send that to him. I will send him this tape. Columbia needs a speech. <laughs> a lot of places in this city need I will send him speeches. this tape, and I will ask him to go actually go to those campuses. He's been very, very forceful on Israel. He's been very forceful on anti-Semitism, and and at the end of the day, New York is the greatest city in the world, outside of Jerusalem. Right. It's the greatest city in the world. Forget about that. It has the largest Jewish population, which he always says. Right. And and so, therefore, everybody knows who Bill de Blasio is all over the world. Whoever the mayor of New York is, is world known. So having somebody like that being so forceful on these issues is really important. We should also point out that uh, yet another thing, and we'll, we'll get to we'll get to many decades ago in a minute on this Yom HaShoah, but we should also point out that you know areas north of San Diego and Pittsburgh, as much as we and we've seen these areas and we love the communities there, they are not nearly as large 
and as influential, let's say, as the greater New York Jewish community is. And yet those local officials, we visited the cops in Pittsburgh, those local officials, same thing, no matter how small that community is and no matter how little influence they might have because they're not a big power base in those areas, they're still willing to run in, protect everybody, and do what's necessary. So it's not just the NYPD. It's it's, it's, it's all these police departments across, across the it's, country. When you think about it in the context of Jewish history, it's it's unfathomable. Right, right. Because many times the, the police or the army or the uh, whoever was in charge of that little dare floor. Right, that public officials. Were the ones that were riling up the people. All right. So we have to keep that in mind. And I'm glad we started this conversation, as I say, in in 2019, especially in light of what happened this past Shabbos. Leon Goldenberg is here. It is Yom HaShoah. You grew up, and I think if I have this right, um, I, I should be careful as, uh, how I say you grew up because it was— I still haven't grown up. <laughs> because it was a, there was a period of time where World War II was not really discussed or a major part of your, of your upbringing, and then at some point it became right. a major part of your upbringing. Would that be the way to say it? I guess so. I guess so. It was uh, something that it want, everybody wanted to bury. Uh, first off, let me just say, I just finished saying Kaddish uh, before Pesach for my aunt. Who was the the last, aunt you've spoken about on this show. Right, who's the last of the four sisters. Meaning your mother and her, and her three, three sisters. sisters. That survived. Of your mother's gone how many years? Uh, three years now. Three and a half years. And she's the last one, and I took upon myself to say Kaddish for her. But she is actually the last one in my family survivor. The last of the survivors. The last of the survivors. I have no more aunts. I have no more uncles. I have no more first cousins that survived. I did have several that survived. I have no survivors. The closest that I have is I have on my wife's side. I have my mother-in-law, and she has three cousins. She had at one time 20 cousins, husbands and wives, you know, 35, 40. You know, this is symbolic of what's going on in the Jewish world in general right. as all these survivors right, right. move on. So there's nobody left, so right. it's become more incumbent on the second generation. And I consider myself one and a half because right. I lost five siblings. Right. It's much more incumbent on us because we heard it. Okay, Almost all of us heard the stories. Whatever way we heard it, almost all of us heard the stories. It's incumbent on us to become the spokesman and not to let it become buried in the past, because it's not the past. It's 75 years ago, almost 75 years ago. Blink of an eye in Jewish history? Blink of an eye in Jewish history that we were marched out, taken to factories, <sighs> taken to factories, not just marched out. In other words, marching them out, in other words, you had in Rwanda where, where people in the heat of battle, and it was a terrible thing, mm -hmm. and they slaughtered people. Right. But here you actually marched them to factories that were set up to kill people. That has never happened in history and hopefully will never happen again. Rohingyas are being driven out of uh, what used to be called Burma. And many of them died and many of them were raped. But there's nobody that marched anybody into factories of killing. It was only the Jews. It was only the Jews. And today you have the New York Times... Uh, making cartoons that, oh, yeah, you're right. Did they fire anybody? No, they didn't. So the fact is, is that there's nobody left in my family today. There's nobody left. So it's become more incumbent. How did it come to me? I guess as a little kid, 
we knew there was family. I don't know that my mother ever said Auschwitz. Maybe I heard it, you know, as a little kid. But when the Eichmann trials happened, she was transfixed. And she sat and watched it from morning to night. People don't even realize that it was on morning to night here in the U.S. Here in the U.S. And she sat there watching. And I would come home. I would find her in the little room with the TV. I don't know if I'm allowed to say we had a TV, (laughs) but in those days. Those days you're allowed to say that. TV. (laughs) And she was just sitting there. And she said, come sit with me. Come watch. And uh, I was the youngest. My brothers were in Yeshiva later, so they came home later. And then... She actually fed me on one of those little TV trays, which I was never allowed to eat at, <laughs> except during the Eichmann trials. She fed me on a TV tray by the TV I should see. And she said, Ezuk ligent, znisht azoi gevein, Ezuk likent, Ezuk erdgurushgatzatin, he's lying, he's, he, this is not how it happened. He's saying he followed orders. He was the director. We have to know, you have to know what happened. This is 1961. Now, it's a little difficult because I was only born in 67 because I'm only 52. <laughs> you calculated that, yeah, huh? <laughs> yeah. But 1961, I'm a young little boy when most kids today wouldn't begin to learn about the Holocaust, and they are teaching it in all the schools, right. all the yeshivas. Thank God. And they shouldn't be teaching it at that age. I agree. She said, you need to know, you need to be able to give it over. And from then on, she opened up about what went on, and she spoke about it constantly, never in a way to make me feel fearful. She always said, we're living in America now. This is a wonderful country. This country gave us a chance. They let us come in when we were nothing, when we were, we could barely walk. They let us come in. They gave us an opportunity. They helped us. This is a great country. And until she was 97, 98, she went to vote. Vote, vote. Very important. Yeah, She went to vote. She wasn't going to pass up that privilege. She was never going to pass up that privilege. Um, It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. We're together, all of us, on this Yom HaShoah. Leon Goldenberg's in our studio. As she's watching the Eichmann trial, uh, it's not just that she's te- calling him a liar to you, but probably in her mind, and maybe even demonstrably, she is uh, probably following every story of every one of these testimonies, going, yeah, that's exactly what happened. You know, right. like, I, I had the same thing. and I, because, because this story was repeated, no, no matter what the horrible treatment was, it was repeated all these millions of times to all these different people. She's probably relating to every single person who's in that witness stand. Yes, there's no question she related to them. And when he spoke, which was mind-boggling, they actually got up to speak. Right. You know, it's, it's really mind-boggling that, that he, you know, didn't choose to uh, sit there silently, but he actually uh, testified. But it was over there that the world changed for her, the world changed for me. I had a... I had a loving home. I had a uh, happy home. There was no darkness of the Holocaust, which some people do have. Most of my friends, I don't know any that really had that, but there are people whose homes were, were dark and sometimes even keeping lights closed right. to have that feeling. But most Holocaust, which is its own, unbelievable. You went through that horror. You watched your family murdered, not killed, murdered, you watch such horror, 
and you can be normal, you can raise some semi-normal children. You know, I don't know where I've fallen. <laughs> but you can have a normal home where it is laughter, where it is joy. How? There's no explanation except for what? God said, you're going to survive and you're going to rebuild. And that's my mother always said when she was sitting shiver for one of her younger sisters, the first of the four to die, my nephew came in and he said, Bobby, 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 tell me what you did during the war that you survived. Tell me one. And she said, me? And he said again, Bobby, tell me something, something that's some story. He says, I, that I did to survive? And he asked her a third time, I want to smack him. It was a grandson-in-law. And she says, do you know why I survived? And he said, why, Bobby? Bobby was expecting her to say, because I did this wonderful thing. I did that wonderful thing. He, and she pointed up, he decided that I was supposed to live. And he gave me one job. He gave me one job, and that was to bring generations into the world, to bring Jewish generations back into this world. And then she looked at me and said, did I do a good job? I said, Ma, I said, Ma except for this one, you did really well. <laughs> did all the sisters live long lives? Yeah. The youngest one uh, was, I think, 89 or 90. The one that I just finished saying Kaddish for was 96. And my mother's oldest sister, who uh, lived a year and a half after my mother, was 102 and a half. What do you think of that, that everyone's living into their 90s after that experience? It's like you'd think it would just physically be a you know something that would scar them for life and really shorten their shorten lives eventually. Their lives. You know? And it definitely did to some people. Right, of course. But, but in, in your family's people, case... was In my mother's case, it's... We're going to, uh, she always said she's going to live to see Mashiach, which uh, she didn't. But, but she uh, almost made She it. always <laughs> had that tremendous amun that Mashiach is coming. She almost made it. And, uh, but they were also mentally alert. Right. Which is critical. Any um, person of faith during the Holocaust probably thought that they were that this close to, in fact, Mashiach coming. There's no question. That's Every, the whole animam, and that's right. why it became a th- theme of, of the Holocaust. Everyone that survived will tell you numerous incidents that happened to them where they saw Yad Hashem, where they saw the hand of God saying, you're going to live. And in, you know, in just one story, the four sisters had made a pact to live together or to die together. They were not going to separate. And this young, the one that, was the person that passed away she had gotten typhus and somehow she healed how she healed there was no medication we don't know and one day they kept them on a pell which is roll call from morning to night in that little skimpy skiff shift that they had that you know a little nothing dress in the winter and it's cold and it's freezing and at the end of the day they said okay now you can go back to your rooms and you have to pass by the doctor and Blotches from the typhus came out on her skin, blue blotches. And the doctor looks at her and he says, that's it, it's over, go to the left. There was a building that they sent you to, and in that building, the next day they took you out to gas you. So my aunt went, and the three sisters followed, because that was the pact. And when they followed, just as they're about to enter that building, not Achman, uh, Dr. Mengele, the doctor, Mengele, right. comes by. 
he looks at her. They were all beautiful women. All four of them were beautiful women. And so he, you know, takes a look at her, and they grabs her arm. He takes a look at her. He says, "Das ist gar nichts. So cannot gay. That's nothing. She can work. Go back." And then the four sisters went back to their bunker, which, by the way, this year. I'm uh, frightened just hearing you tell the story. This year, they went. I went back. You saw the... I saw my mother's barracks, and I actually spoke at the barracks. Uh, we were a group of... It was a tour group. We were about... Is it possible you were at that building you just referred to, the, the, where, they were, where they were about to be taken? With that building, too, but I was at her barracks right. where I spoke. We were a group of 30, but we were joined by a group that came right by Adler in Toronto, brought a group of about 30 to 40 young men, uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 years old. We had a, you know, Shabbos, a wonderful Shabbos, and they came with us to Auschwitz. So I spoke to about 70 people, and I spoke about this, but I spoke about not just the Harris, which my mother didn't, you know, told me about, but what she did to save people. And I, and to me, that, that That's was... That's what you a, spoke about there. Yes, that's what I spoke Because about as there. we said at the beginning of this conversation, the chesed and generosity, the, even in a concentration camp... The greatness was unbelievable. Uh, Ten years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I took, brought my mother home from, uh, um, from Florida. My brother's, my oldest brother was always the good son. He... <laughs> took her, he picked her up, he was by her every day, she used to tell me. There's a good one in every bunch, huh? There's a good one in every bunch. Uh, he he never stopped diving on her corner, and every morning, check her fridge, see what she needs, go out and buy it, and every morning, as my mother would say, you know your brother was here and gave me a kiss already. <laughs> but one time I, I was, uh, so I had to bring her back, and on the plane, is another elderly couple, and she says, you're friendly with their son. So after I put my mother in her seat, I went to ask, uh, who are you? And they told me, I said, yeah, I'm actually very friendly with your son. And then she says, you know that I am here because of your mother. As your mother's sitting there? Well, my mother's a few seats back. I'm saying, she's, she's right there, and they're telling you this. And I said, my mother, I'm genius. Everybody knows what a genius I am. I said, my mother didn't buy you tickets. <laughs> I said, maybe my brother bought you tickets. She said, tickets? I need you to buy me tickets? I have children. They buy me my tickets. They take care of everything. I said, so what do you mean? Because I'm standing here because of your mother. I said, you're standing here because of my mother? She says, yes, we come from the same town. And in the bunk where your mother was, there were 30, 35 young girls, 14 to 16 years old, whose mothers had been killed, who either didn't have older siblings or they already died, and we were alone. We had nobody. Nobody to look at us, nobody to care for us, and we were frightened to death, clearly. Of course. And your mother and her sisters, who were older, they were between 20 and 30 years old, they became our mother, and they took care of us. And one time I collapsed, and everybody thinks that everybody got soup and a piece of bread. Not everybody got bread. Only the people in the front of the line got bread. And your aunt, Feige, who I have a granddaughter named, I just had a granddaughter named after her, 
your Aunt Feige was, but she had been married, so she had come from a different town. So she was there earlier. She was getting the bread. And she was cutting into four for the four sisters. When I collapsed, they realized I wasn't getting the bread. And the one slice of bread that meant life to them, they gave me. And then they hid me in the bunk. You see, I'm a very skinny woman. I was skinnier then, of course. And when they put the blanket over, you couldn't see me. And then another time, I collapsed. And your mother took me to the toilet because I was the only place there was water. I only found out now, when I went to Auschwitz now, there wasn't a toilet in every barracks. There was a special building built to be a toilet. So my mother didn't take her to the end of the barracks and get her water. She took her outside. She took her outside at the risk of her life because if the Germans or the Ukrainian guards or whoever was there or the Polish guards would have seen her, they were shot her down dead. And she carried her, and it's probably like two, maybe three blocks away. With, And I only became aware of that now, that she actually had to carry her outside to take her into that room where the water was to be able to give her some water and to splash on her to make her wet and bring her back to life. And she said there were numerous times during the war because afterwards they went to work at Siemens, the great Siemens that's still sure. out there, uh, where my mother uh, got a pension for working there as a slave laborer. All right. Let's keep... Uh, In perspective, right? Yeah. And constantly they saved my life and many of the other young girls that were there. This, and I assume that this, this is greatness. And I assume this uh, lady that you met had many children and grandchildren at that point. Many children. So and your mother's not only responsible for her life, but she said everything that is mine belongs to the sisters. <sighs> when and, you were so, so this is this is a visit to Auschwitz. Yes. Me and so so if someone was there, and there are many people there this week for March of the Living. If if someone was there, this would be in the center of the camp. This would be where where what would well, how, how did you find it? The barracks where my mother always said which barracks she was in. And that was it. You knew the number and, and you and you number. and you went there and Right. Was it situated as part well, of Well the barracks itself has been destroyed. Mm. Uh but you know the There's a detailed there. map right. of where the No, I mean you, you see, right. not all the barracks have been destroyed. Many are standing. Hers happened to be destroyed. But then when I saw because they took us into the room where where the toilets were, and that's when I realized she didn't take it to the end of the barracks. She took her 100 feet and carried her. She carried her for several blocks. Outside, at risk to her life, she carried her. This is greatness. And when I asked my mother, she says, we don't talk about it. I said, you, ne- you tell me everything about the water, everything that everybody did to you terrible. <laughs> you never told me what you did to save. And then she said... We did what we had to do, and let's not discuss it. And she never, ever discussed it. The, good, when, the good parts. Right. And when this or the lady, positive parts, I they, her family made a video for the family, right. you know, where they came from, and, you know, they had pictures, you mm-hmm. know, of the grandparents and the house that they had come from. And the video is about 10 minutes long. Half the video is about my mother and my aunt. Wow. After video, and they sent it to me because that she keeps saying what Feige and Chaichu did for me. So, so my aunt is Feige, 
from my mother's Chaychu or Chaya, and strangely enough, she was named Chaya Fahey. She had both <laughs> their names. Um, do you ever think about the the death that surrounded your mother? The thousands, I would assume, thousands. of people around her that that just on a regular basis were being murdered or fell ill and and died. Just her family. Yeah. Just her family. You don't even have to look that far out. Her mother, her sister, her three brothers. She did very well. They came five out of nine children, survived the war. That's very good. All her aunts, all her uncles, most of her first cousins, second cousins, they came out very few people. Her family itself really came out exception well five out of nine but her relatives so if uh, those of us with large extended families would just try to process that you can't uh, it grew up with no grandparents i had one friend that had a grandmother right. we didn't we, we thought it was normal you and i have discussed this um, uh, many many times on this show that I, I know people and you obviously lived through this uh who were kids in borough park or anywhere in brooklyn and th- until they went to school, they never realized that you could have a grandparent. Right. In fact, someone I told you last year when you were here that someone said to me at their shiva that they were, of 40 kids in the class, the only kids who had a grandparent. grandparent. And I'm sure you remember that. I mean, that's something you remember. Nobody had grandparents. Nobody. And look at today. Nobody had. You see how many great-grandparents I went last are? night to a wedding, and the grandfathers are dancing with the chassan. They're my friends. They're my friends. They are great grandparents. My my mother in law, who's the only one of the few survivors on my, she has five generations. She's she a great great. She has twenty great greats. She has about twenty great greats. She has. She only had two daughters. She only had uh, nine grandchildren. Can we just remind everybody listening that this probably has never happened to this extent in Jewish history? Right. Never. We are in a time that is a time of miracles. She has over 100 great-grandchildren and still coming. My son's only getting married. Okay. and many, 20 great-greats. And she has 20 great-greats. She has about, uh, I would think, 10, maybe 12 great-grandchildren that are married. She might already have more than 20. I don't know if she really can keep track. <laughs> but the idea, and like when my father, who passed away 44 years ago, oh. so there were two things that he wanted. He wanted to see us married, okay, and he wanted to see the next star. And my oldest brother got married. I got married right after I got married. My oldest brother had a little girl who my sister-in-law, because really the name by us belongs to the mother's family, right. the first child. Traditionally. Traditionally. She decided she was going to give the name to my father. And she named her baby after my father's mother. He didn't have a name anywhere because we were three boys. Right. And he had no siblings. They were Every sibling was killed. He was survived by one sister-in-law. And the idea that he would see name for his mother was unbelievable. And this grandchild, every Friday I would take him. Every Friday and Sunday we'd go visit her. She did nothing. What does what does a month, one month old baby do? He would sit there holding her for two hours. So the idea that he saw the next generation to him 
was the continuation. What was your father's name? Avramava. You know, Rabbi Riskin has said, I think he has said it on this show, he certainly has said it to me privately, he said he stopped fearing death when he had his first grandchild. And for those who are now grandparents like yourself, you probably know what he means by that. And I'm sure that's what your father felt. Like, I can now leave this world knowing that there is a door, a generation after my own children. That's going to continue and to continue on the Derech Hashem, on the way of God. And to him, that was unbelievable. My brother, my older brother got married after me. Shabbat Shavu Brachas ended. And Thursday, he went to the hospital. He never came out. But he had seen the next generation. And in his hospital bed, he had the picture of 8 by 10, I remember like today, of my niece sitting in front of him. Because that's all he wanted to look at was this granddaughter who's named after his mother as a continuation of the generations. Leon Goldenberg is here. It's Yom HaShoah, everybody. This is the day we remember the 6 million uh, as designated by the government and Rabbanut in Israel. It's Yom HaShoah, and uh, we are discussing, uh, as we do now on an annual basis, uh, Leon's uh, family's story and some of the perspectives of being being around and recognizing the, the incredible miracle that we have of being around a generation that we have today one of safety and security, relatively speaking, here in the U.S. and other parts of the world, a state of Israel, Baruch Hashem, which I'm sure your father and others <laughs> appreciated a lot more than some people these days That's do, sure. uh, a state of Israel. And on top of that, of course, the incredible um, and uh, amazing miracle of sometimes being at events with five generations of a Jewish family <laughs> which is so remarkable, and if you think about it in the context of Jewish history, one would have said it would be impossible. And look how often it's happening. And by the way, do you ever stop and say, because you're one of those people with a wedding every night, do you ever stop and say to yourself, my gosh, I'm at a wedding every single night. There's so much incredible goodness going on in the community. So much simcha and joy. A cousin of mine called this week. and was asking where my son's wedding is. You know, and by Hasidim, between the first and fifteenth, right. we make weddings. Right. After the fifteenth, we don't. Of the Jewish month, everybody. The Jewish month, month, right? I said all this stuff is gone. I went to a wedding right. last night. I went to a wedding the night before. Right. Who made a wedding <laughs> right. after after Pesach? Right. Nobody ever made a wedding after the Lag Bomer. To Lag Bomer. Now I got they do it. Now they do it till the last minute of Rosh Chodesh. The last minute of Rosh Chodesh. They start early. Right. Just so, to say that we can continue into the night. That we continue right? into the night. But you want to know something? Because I, you have to. And I've made a prediction that in the, the Ashkenazi community, I don't think this applies to the Sephardic communities. I think they uh, don't have as, as serious uh, customs as we have during the three weeks. But I've already said, watch, in the Ashkenazi community, they'll have to start making weddings during the three weeks. Not going to be out of the time. Not going to be out of the right. – they're going to have no choice. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen, but you get my point when right. I say that. And there's so many more halls, and right. it doesn't make a difference. Can I honor the communities? Growing and growing, and that itself is a testament that there is a God, because these people that should have all been when they sent the Jews to Cyprus when they tried to get it, they should have taken islands like Cyprus and in the Pacific and put the Jews on the island, give them all the food they need, everything that they need, just put a fence around it so none of them can escape, because they all had to be locked up. They could not be normal people after what they went through. Right. They should have all been put into asylums, very comfortable asylums, but they should have all been put away. And instead, 
those are the people that came here. They took the Judaism that was planted by the Jews that had come before the war, and we were the fertilizer, and we made it grow. Absolutely amazing. If not for the Jews that had come before, I don't know if we would have survived, but if we didn't come and fertilize the soil of America, and now look, look at, at we have in, in New York 160,000 children in yeshivas. 160,000 children in yeshivas. And you also have a lot of people nationwide here and in other parts of the world who have a very positive attitude toward the Jewish community. Yes. A lot of friends. We saw this post, the the episode this past Shabbos, right. the way everybody, Jew and non-Jew alike, reacted. Especially in the Christian community. Yeah. There's, they're, they're who would have believed that? It's just unbelievable. Can I assume your mother was somebody who did not complain about too many simchas? Unlike some of us today who are like, what, an, I have another one? Some people make jokes about the stack of invitations that I have right, here. Right. I, I would assume she was the type that would not have no, ha- no. have balked at going to simcha to after simcha, simcha after simcha. No, no. And the chutzpah we have, right. when I saw my father also, not a not a survivor of the camps, but somebody from that generation certainly who, you know, we can relate to in terms of the the poverty they grew up with, etc. He would run, and we, we did not have the means to do this on a regular basis, but if there was a simcha in the family, no matter where it was, and he had brothers and sisters all around the U.S. and Israel, no matter where it was, he made sure to be there. And today, we cheshben, can we make it, can we go? And we have a lot more money than they had then. That's right. And and There's no question. My, my brother was mashadach with somebody in Montreal, and so we were there for the uh, wedding, and they were seven or eight siblings. Not not for the for the collar, but right. for the parents' generation. And one of them had moved to New York. And he said, uh, he was saying that when he first moved to, and all the rest stayed in Montreal. And he said when he first moved to New York, he said he made up every simchab coming back. <laughs> every simchab coming back. And the first year or two, a bris, a kiddish for a girl. <laughs> Everything he came back. And then it got to the point, can I know her? Right. He said he didn't come back for bar mitzvahs. I only came for chasanis. And then he was mashadach. He did a, a shidduch with his brother. Now it's a machutin, which there is no word in English. I can't translate that. Right. All right. There's no such thing. Right. By us, but in English, it's the outlaws. Right. Okay? The parents-in-law, right? But as a machutin, he had to come back for every simchus. So he started coming back for grandchildren's brisson. And then his other brothers complained, his sisters complained. Tosh, you don't come. He says, he's my machutin. <laughs> but he says it was impossible to come to every simcha. It just wasn't possible, which, thank God, is, is it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Uh, what a problem to have, huh? What an amazing problem to have. Um we 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 often, especially on a day like today on Yom Hashoah, we often don't uh, don't remember enough the um, uh, the sacrifice that people made for what we would call Yiddishkeit, what people made for for Torah, for Shabbos, for you know. And I don't know if there's anything that sticks out in your mind that that had to do with Jewish observance. Um, but you know, in those circumstances that your mother and her sisters were in, you know, obviously it's not a, it's not an easy environment to do anything. Do you remember? So was, my, my, uh, aunt would make them, this is in the camps and I'll tell you in America, 
my aunt made them stop to bench lecht. They didn't have any lecht. Right. But every Friday night, they would bench lecht. They would stop for a minute in the fields. They were always working. And they would stop in the fields, and they would welcome the Shabbos. My aunt actually <sighs> took threads from her uh, shift, and she saved up. Sometimes they could get butter by my aunt. My, I had an uncle that was uh, in the camp, and he was... They actually killed him because he was in the Southern Commandos, which are the ones that took the people out of the gas chambers, and very few of them survived. And he actually used to throw over the fence notes to them. And he actually threw over thread and needles because they had all learned to be seamstresses. And my mother would sew for the people in the kitchen, um, you know, uh, little uh, aprons. And for that, they would get skins of beets. Why do they need skins of beets? And first off, my uncle used to write, he says, eat everything you can. You need to be strong to survive. So my aunt asked for the skins of beets so that they would put it on their cheeks so that they would look healthy. And she would put it on all these girls in, in the bunk. She would take this, the beets, the skins, and just rub it on everybody's cheek. And your cheeks would be a little redder. And so you looked healthy. Amazing thing. And then she asked for a little bit of butter. And she got it. And on Hanukkah, she lit candles little strings that she took out of her dress and a little bit of butter that she did. It came Yom Kippur and my aunt said, we're not eating. And the sister said, we're not eating anyway. (laughs) And she says, we are not eating. And they fasted on Yom Kippur. And when they came back to the barracks after Yom Kippur, their blockmaster, Judith, who was a... I actually donated uh, some sedurum in many hospitals in her memory. She was a Polish Jew. We don't know her last name. She saved the sisters numerous times. But after Yom Kippur, she put away a little bit of soup and the bread for them. Which They had a breakfast. They had a breakfast, <laughs> which... Was incre- they were not expecting this, yeah, imagine. which was incredible on her part because if the Nazis found out, they would have killed her for it. Of course. And if the Jews, was, some of the Jews would have found out, they might they would have killed her also. To get it. <laughs> right. And she put away for them the soup and, and that, you know, that slice of bread that they shared, and she put it away for them. So when they came back, but they actually fasted on Yom Kippur. Now, the Polish Jews can't understand this because they were in a camp, some of them from 1940, 41. Right. And, and they were lucky. They were from the Hungarian countryside, not really hungry, but the Hungarian countryside, and they had the ability. They were strong. Right? Right. And so if the Polish Jews didn't do uh, the, the fasting, it's understandable. Mm-hmm. But they actually fasted on Yom Kippur. When they came to America, my father got his first job. He got it from somebody whose father was the Russia call, the head of the city of the town that he came from. And they had a grocery in the Bronx that was open on Shabbos. And the wife, who had known my father from Europe, said to her husband, you're going to hire him. And he's not working on Shabbos, but he's from the rabbi's mishpacha, he's from the rabbi's family. He's not going to work on Shabbos, and you're still going to hire him. 
So he got this job that he went in Matzah Shabbos. He worked till an hour before Shabbos. He worked 10, 12 hours, whatever the store is open, probably 12 hours a day for $15 a week. Now, what's $15 a week? Let's put it in perspective. The rent was $40 a week. A yeah. month, I mean. So he has 20 bucks left. He's got 20 bucks left to pay for everything. For everything. And uh, he lost a brother that had come to America before the war, and he's sitting shiva, and he's afraid to lose his job. So he asked a nephew. He had two nieces that survived, and they had uh, married. So he asked his nephew, who wasn't working, go ahead and, and take the job right. for the week, and you'll get Hold the pay. Hold it for me. Right. Hold it for me. And on Friday, he came to my mother, and he says, uh, can I get the paycheck? And my mother gives him $15. And he says to my mother, he says, but the uncle, the Fanta, the uncle said, I'm getting the paycheck this week. And my mother said, that's the paycheck. That's the whole thing. And he says, are you crazy? I work like a horse this week. And you can't live on $15 a week. And because I don't have a job, somehow the uncle gives me money every week to help me out. So from the $15... He paid his rent. He had to pay. He had to give key money to get the apartment, $2,000. He had to pay back the $2,000. And he was still able to give his nephew some money every week to help him get through. And this story was being repeated a million times all around. Yes, yes. Um, a Matzah Yom Kippur, just going back to the other story for a moment. Do you sometimes sit there with your bagel and cream cheese and... <laughs> And say to yourself, this is a different type of breakfast than my mother had. It's a different type. <laughs> it, it has to cross your mind, right? But it, but it also has to cross my mind, the greatness yep. of these people. So when we say in America, the greatest generation, yes, not to take anything away from, mm-hmm. from the soldiers that went. Of course. But the greatness of the generation that went through that hell and came out made a commitment and don't think for a second that everyone didn't think should I remain from should I not remain right. from if you think that they just came <laughs> out of the camps right. and they said no problem we're putting on towels we're putting on tefillin we're keeping kosher everybody went through their own questioning that they never discussed with me but it would be good to add at this point that those who are listening especially the younger people who sometimes get frustrated with the rigors of keeping our faith, we should think about what our predecessors did to preserve our rituals and our faith. What the weather went through America, suffering, losing jobs. Or in I, Europe in the camps. Oh, Europe in the camps. My, my, I have a friend whose grandmother was a widow at 30, 32 years old with three children. She had over 100 jobs until she found somebody who kept her for shops. And the same, the ones that came out of camps and made the decision, I am going to stay religious. Or some that were not religious said, I saw God and I am going to become religious. It, each one made, there was, no, there was no rabbi making a call, everybody come back. I mean, the rabbis, the visions, the rabbi, there were others that did whatever they could to bring back people. But each one individually had to make that decision on their own and to continue life, to continue being a religious Jew, or to become a religious Jew, and to bring generations on the world. And they 
did a phenomenal job. Unbelievable. Uh, Yamar Shoah with Leon Goldenberg is our guest here at JM and the AM uh, to bring this conversation full circle. Uh, we started by discussing 2019 and the anti-Semitism that we see in the United States at this time and the way it manifests itself, including what happened this past Shabbos and in Pittsburgh and many other places. And uh, we should keep in mind, do not take it for granted. Do not take our existence for granted. Do not take our community for granted. Do not take our public officials and our police forces for granted because they are, in comparison to many other government officials and police forces in history, they are behaving very differently, and they are being very benevolent and very kind to our community. We should keep and that in mind. If you want to get the anti-Semites, this Shabbos, Shul I David in Florida, the Shul actually, that's what it's called, sent out. Where is that? What city? In Surfside, mm-hmm. but the Shul, the big Shul right. on Ninety Fifth Street, sent out. Come to Shul, show them. It's Rosh Chodesh benching. Right. It's the blessing big of Shabbos. the new moon, big Shabbos. If you don't always go to shul, if you never go to shul, go to shul this Shabbos. Anywhere. Go to shul. Men, women, children. May, let it be noisy in shul because, you, because we have hundreds of kids in shul. Only this Shabbos. Let it be <laughs> noisy. Let's hear the voices of the children and let's show them that we will continue to go to shul no matter what you try to do with us. We are here to live in happiness and enjoy and to see the children in shul, and everybody should make an attempt to show up in a shul. That is the message for uh, this week. Everyone has an opportunity to be proactive and to make a statement about anti-Semitism and those who try to stop us here in this country. Be in synagogue this Shabbos. Be in synagogue this Shabbos and bring your entire family with you. That is the only response that we can have uh, to demonstrate our, uh, our faith and our love for a Jewish future. Uh, Leon, I thank you. This is uh, always an amazing and incredibly inspiring conversation. Yom HaShoah with so much to think about in terms of the past, but when you're here, we get to talk about the present and future as well and in the context of, of what this day is all about, and I thank you so much for doing it with us here. Thank you for having me, and thanks to everybody for remembering. Yeah. And let us always remember. J.M. and the A.M. on a Yom HaShoah. Keep it here at the Nachum Siegel Network. That was my conversation with Leon Goldenberg, who joined me on JM in the AM on Yom HaShoah Holocaust Remembrance Day. That closes out this edition of JM Rewind. More coming up if you keep it right here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Da, 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 da.